What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100 and something of the podcast, so we're not a new podcast anymore, pretty obviously. But for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically what we do on this podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published uh, on a uh, topic or a person or thing that... Uh, we think you would find uh, entertaining and uh, enjoy a conversation about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and purchase the book yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Vincent Philip Munoz, and Dr. Munoz is the Tocqueville Assistant, Associate Professor of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame, and the founder of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. You may have seen his writings in National Review, uh, First Things, Public Discourse, The, the Weekly Standard, uh, Rest in Peace, and the Claremont Review of Books, uh, as well as in scholarly journals like the American Political Science Review, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, and the Journal of Constitutional Law, among others. He is also the author of God and the Founders, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, and the editor of Religious Liberty in the American Supreme Court, The Essential Cases and Documents. And lastly, he is the author of Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses, which was published back in August by the University of Chicago Press and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Munoz, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, so I was pleased to see in the acknowledgments, actually, because I'm the type of guy who, you know, reads that stuff too. <laughs> Most people, but uh, you give a little shout out to uh, Don Drakeman, who is a actually a, a two-time uh, guest on the podcast and a... Uh, really uh very nice and interesting guy so i was uh, uh yeah happy to see that dr Grakeman is one of the very best uh church state scholars and has become a friend we have some you know relatively minor disagreements but mm -hmm. yeah you know, he's a first he's a first-rate scholar and he's uh, the type of scholar that makes scholars like me feel bad about ourselves because <laughs> he just does scholarship for fun in his spare time and you know he's a businessman yeah Real life. Yeah, it's actually kind of annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that when I first met him. I, I didn't either when, because uh, we did his uh, book, uh, his law book that came out, was it late last year or early this year? I can't remember. Interpretation, yeah. It's yeah, very yeah. And, yeah it, was, it was fantastic. And then at the end of the podcast, he was like, oh, by the way, I have this, uh, I have this other book out on, like, uh, biomedical companies and uh and biomedical research and all this sort of stuff if you want to do that too it was like really i was like he was like yeah the, the con law stuff is just sort of like a side gig and i was like oh, yeah yes, i know i think your listeners like, more interested in us talking about don's book but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. he's a scholar yeah yeah he's a cool dude all right uh anyway so to your book itself uh, religious liberty and the american founding um so I guess first things first, what made you want to write the book and, you know, what was the what was the genesis of it? Yeah, that's a good question. Gosh. Um, well, uh, personally, just uh, uh, intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, the Supreme Court had been making these decisions on um, I remember back in uh, 2004, it's a long time ago, on whether under God could be kept in uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and public school recitations of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, whether the Ten Commandments could be posted uh, uh, on public property, uh, whether religious individuals and institutions should get exemptions from laws. I mean, these are really interesting and difficult questions of law and politics. And I, you know, in some of, I had strong opinions, but on some of these cases, some of the cases I wasn't so sure. And 
So I wanted to think through these things. So that's sort of my personal interest in trying to think through the idea of what is religious freedom and the right to religious freedom. How does how does the Constitution protect religious freedom? Mm. And and then just one other thing here. This may be more of a scholarly pursuit. Um, kind of dawned on me that um, because I teach the founding and um, that you know that's my expertise, the American founding and their political thought. The founders talk about natural rights all the time, especially when they talk about religious liberty. We have an inalienable natural right to religious liberty. But when justices and scholars talk about religious liberty, they talk about neutrality. Mm -hmm. uh, and the founders never talked about neutrality in those terms. And there, there seemed to me a huge disconnect between how scholars and the court talk about religious liberty and how the founders talked about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to try to uh, investigate uh, what did the founders really mean um, when they said we had an inalienable natural right to religious liberty? What would that mean today if we followed the founders? And then how do, does our current jurisprudence um, follow or, as the case may be, not follow the founders? That's what I try to do in this book. Uh, you know, there's a further question, which I suppose is the most important question. You know, uh, do we have it better today? Uh, do, you know, whether it's a liberal approach or conservative approach today? Or do the founders offer us something um, that we ought to reconsider? Mm -hmm. We can't answer that latter question, you know, should we follow the founders until we understand them? So right. what I'm going to do in this book is just to articulate the founders' political and philosophical and constitutional understanding of the right to religious liberty. Yeah, and uh, before we go any further, I forgot to warn you when we were talking before the, the podcast that... Uh, uh, when you're discussing, I tell this to everybody when I'm when I'm doing like con law and stuff like that on the podcast. That uh, basically, when you're uh, formulating answers, just just pretend that I am basically like the dumbest kid in <laughs> one of your classes, and just a sort of uh, approach at that level. Uh, but yeah, so touching this a little bit, but the book intends basically. That we have ne we haven't grasped the founders' natural rights understanding of religious liberty, nor have we accurately appreciated how it could inform uh, First Amendment church-state jurisprudence, and that uh, we don't we've lost our understanding of what the founders meant when they declared religious liberty to be an inherent right or or natural or an inalienable right. I think yeah, I think that's right. I think. The way the court especially has talked about religious freedom and the constitutional right to religious freedom is um, very far away, much divorced from the founders' understanding. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying in this book to, to lay out in a way, you know, for scholars, but really for a general audience. I, I tried to write the book in a way that, you know, just the educated reader, I'm sure the listener of your podcast, even you and <laughs> Um, I don't use a lot of technical language or anything like that. I mean, no, no, no. Footnotes. I, right, I leave the scholarly stuff for the footnotes, and I just try to explain yeah. it as clearly as possibly and as impartially as possible. You know, this was the founders' understanding of the natural right to religious liberty. Yeah, and uh, just as a side note, I'm always going to recommend to everybody to always uh, read the footnotes. Uh, always, <laughs> always, always read the footnotes. It's uh, uh, you know brings so much more understanding to everything and context to everything and i've actually i always love books that have actual footnotes instead of endnotes because it just makes my life easier you know because they're right there at the bottom of the page and you don't have to go like flipping back and forth you know between the chapter and uh, you know all that stuff so i appreciate uh, the design <laughs> of that so well it's, funny. Oh, go it's ahead. funny in that one of the reasons i um went with chicago university of chicago press they've been great um there's two things i wanted in this book i mean uh, you know, I'm an academic, and it matters where I publish. Chicago is a very prestigious press, but that that was not so important to me personally. Um, I wanted uh, the book to be relatively inexpensive and to come out in paperback, and mm -hmm. I think it's thirty dollars or so, so it's pretty affordable. And I wanted footnotes, um, and I wanted the footnotes so I could leave all the scholarly stuff, you know, which is important to to some people, could have that easily accessible, but not clutter up the main prose. 
with the scholarly dispute, which let's be honest, most people aren't that interested in, in that. So if you want to know, you know, where I think other scholars go wrong or what other scholars get right, uh, my arguments with Don Drakeman are in the footnotes, <laughs> not, not in the main text. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're actually correct. I just checked on Amazon. It's, it's 30 bucks on the nose of the paperback. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, you know, I, it's good because it's a book, I hope at least that, um, you know, open-minded folks who are just want to know something about our history and our philosophical history or constitutional mm-hmm. history, that they can pick it up uh, and read it. And, you know, the, the chapters are, are written in such a way that they stand alone. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to read it from beginning to end. Um, you know, it was all deliberate. Be, uh, yeah, I'm a teacher at heart, and I, I hope that this book will be of interest to and available to, accessible to, you know, a, a, a more general general audience yeah well i mean it's it's definitely a very lucid um uh narrative um you know it's not a, uh like, like you said it's an academic press but it's available in paperback and uh it's uh i mean it's it's obviously written for law students but it's also written for the general reader in mind it's, it's nothing you can't uh, you know you can't really make heads or tails of if you don't have a, a a law background or a law degree or anything like that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, actually it's a pretty fantastic starting point, I would say for, um, somebody who's looking into, um, into the subject and, you know, what exactly the founders meant, um, you know, when we, when we talk about religious liberty and natural rights and, uh, you know, what, what the, 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 uh, religious clauses actually mean and all that sort of stuff. I, it's probably, I would say, um, it, it should be the go-to book going forward on that. But anyway, we'll get to the, we'll get to that in the end, but, uh, let's get to the main arguments of the book, which helpfully (laughs) you bulleted into the introduction, uh, which is nice. But, uh, so uh, the first main argument of the book is that, um, state declarations of rights and and the state constitutions that were drafted in the founding era and those as well as the founders their philosophical and their political writings show that their most authoritative understanding of religious liberty is that it is an inalienable natural right um and then further as you said the the, the state documents, these uh, these state declarations of rights, these state constitutions, these are the, the really the pivotal evidence of the study. But um, but uh, talk a little bit about that and uh, what exactly we mean when we when we say an inalienable natural right. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, those are great questions. Let let me give a little bit of context here. Sure. So in um, in 1947 there was a um, big First Amendment. Uh, Supreme Court case called Everson versus Board of Education. And this is the first time the Supreme Court um, adjudicated the Establishment Clause. So the First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law uh, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then the question for the court is, what is an establishment of religion? And the Supreme Court says, not unreasonably, well, it's not altogether clear what an establishment of religion is. Um, so they turn to the founders and they turn to Thomas Jefferson and this letter he writes in 1802 uh, to the Danbury Baptist Association, uh, where the famous wall separation. Right, letter. Yeah. So if you ask, you know, I don't know if you ask uh, lots of people today, uh, you know, what does the establishment clause mean or you know, what's religious freedom? They might say the wall of separation between church and state. Mm. Um well, so the Supreme Court here in its first pivotal case um, says, look, the text of the Constitution isn't clear. Let's go to Thomas Jefferson. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote the First Amendment or had something to do with it or, you know, as president, at least. Uh, and so they, they cite this letter. I mean, it turns out Thomas Jefferson didn't actually have much to do at all with the drafting of the First Amendment. He was in Paris at yeah. the time. Um, and this letter, which is quite interesting, uh, is 1802, you know, it's, uh, over a decade after the First Amendment was drafted, it's not at all clear that this letter has much to do with the First Amendment. I mean, it is on the theme of religious freedom, but not on mm-hmm. 
Thomas Jefferson is not really giving an interpretation of the First Amendment. Um, so I start this way by just saying, you know, we have this uh, constitutional jurisprudence that got off uh, to uh, an ill-considered start from the very beginning, and we've never course corrected. At least if we've never course corrected, if an accurate history is your goal. Um, and the most obvious place to turn to what the founders uh, thought religious freedom meant when the Constitution was drafted is what the founders said about religious freedom when the Constitution was drafted. And the most authoritative documents on the meaning of religious freedom are in the state declarations of rights. These are documents drafted between 1776 and 1786. Um, they're, they're not exactly state constitutional law, but there are statements of principles that each state adopted when it drafted a new constitution, or almost all the states adopted, when they drafted their new constitutions, you know, after uh, the revolution or during the revolution. And they articulate the, the American mind, as it were, their philosophical and political mind, uh, the shared sentiments of America. And they all basically say the same thing about religious freedom. Religious freedom is an inalienable or inherent natural right. Um, so, so that's why I turn to these documents. And it's just sort of remarkable because so much work has been done on the founders and church and state that very few scholars have paid attention to these documents. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the first, uh, as you, now let me get back to your question. <laughs> the, the first part of the book just says, hey, here's the evidence. If you want to know what the founders thought, here are their most official documents uh, that were drafted at the state levels, you know, by the people, by the representatives of the people in an authoritative way throughout the nation, you know, from New Hampshire, to uh, South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, and this is what they said about religious freedom. And they said religious liberty is an inalienable natural right. right. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, what's an inalienable natural right? Well, there's a couple concepts in there. Um, let's start with the idea of a natural right. Uh, what, does the, what work does the word natural do? Um, you know, well, if there are natural rights, are there unnatural rights? Uh, well, acquired that, rights, as you yeah, said. acquired yeah. rights is so there are natural rights and acquired rights. Uh, acquired rights are rights that we acquire when we enter into political society. Um, so the right to serve on a jury or the right to have a driver's license, these are rights that are acquired. Uh, there are no juries in a pre-political society. Um, Natural rights are rights that inhere in your human nature. You have them on account of being the type of being you are, right? They're, or to quote the Declaration, they're endowed by our Creator, nature and nature's God, right? So we have um, uh, the right to life uh, because no one else can uh, uh, legitimately take your life without good cause. You know, it would be a violation of justice. So natural rights are just a way of talking about natural justice and it's the, the founders language. Um, so natural rights are not created by the government. That's the main point. They're uh, a product of uh, our human dignity, as we'd say today, or mm -hmm. our human nature. Gotcha. Uh, sorry, I know I'm going on. No, no, no. Uh, go ahead. Take all the time you need. Um, OK, so that's the core conception of natural. What about the idea of inalienable? Um, and I, this maybe um, is one of my more novel arguments, though I don't think it's actually especially novel. I'm just recovering things that we've forgotten. Um, if there are inalienable natural rights, that suggests there are alienable natural rights. Uh, and that's what, how the founders talk about natural rights. There are two types of natural rights, inalienable natural rights and natural and, and alienable natural rights. Uh, well, what does that mean? And here, I mean, this would take a little bit um, longer to explain, but it's uh, part of the founder's social compact theory. And basically, they say when we create government, we do give some powers over to government. That is, we alienate some of our natural rights. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we give up the natural rights. It just means we turn over to the government power to make laws about and regulate our natural rights. Our inalienable natural rights are rights we don't give power to government over. We don't alienate it. That's why they're inalienable. That's a meaning of the inalienability. That is, we retain these rights. 
it's a jurisdictional um, concept. Uh, we talk about limited government, or at least we used to talk about limited government. And by that, we mean uh, the government doesn't have power to do all things. There are some things it can't do. That's why it's limited. Well, what are the things it can't do? Well, it can't exercise jurisdiction over our inalienable natural rights because we didn't give government the power to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has a, a inalienable has a relatively precise and technical term that we we just have no conception of it today because we've lost our general understanding of the founders' philosophy of government. They call it the social compact, social compact theory. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do is um, unpack and uncover and explain these conceptions. Let me give you just one one example. Sure. Maybe will help. I'm, I know I'm talking at an abstract level. Um, to do almost anything uh, professionally today, you have to have a uh, license that is from the government. Um, so, you know, I'm sure you have lots of lawyers listening to the show. You, you got to get a law license to practice law. Uh, you got to get uh, uh, great uh, hair. You got to get a license. A marriage license to get married. I don't know if you have to get a podcast license to get <laughs> to a podcast. I mean, maybe in some states. Unfortunately, uh, no. Or yeah. Fortunately, no. <laughs> to cut hair. Uh, I, I need a haircut <laughs> right now. Yeah. I, I'll go to a barber. Uh, he has to get a cosmetology license. Uh, to teach grade school, you have to have an education license. You have, and and um, there might be a problem of over-licensing, but licensing is something we give power to government to do, right? To protect the health, wealth, and morals of the community. What about a preaching license? If you want to preach, do you have to get a preaching license? And most people immediately recognize, no, we don't allow government to give preaching licenses. And and then you have to ask, well, why not? I mean, why shouldn't the government license preachers? It would be an effective way to combat hate preaching, for example. And the answer is because we never gave the government authority over our religious exercises. And an implication of that is government can't license preachers. Government has no authority to say who is a legitimate or illegitimate preacher. You know, we can say, look, if you want to practice medicine, you got to be certified. You got to get a license. The public has to have, if you advertise yourself as a doctor, it's, it, the state has a responsibility to you know, protect the public um, from fraudulent doctors, you know, people practicing medicine who actually aren't doctors or aren't trained. That's a legitimate function of the state. But we don't say that we don't give an analogous power to the government over religion. Government can't say this is a legitimate preacher. Why not? Because we never gave the government that sort of power. We can't give that government that sort of power because religious free exercise is an inalienable natural right. Gotcha. Okay. Now, uh, the second of the main arguments of the book, and that is uh, basically that the the framers of the First Amendment, uh, they left the original meanings of the religious clauses undetermined. So there is no unambiguous no clear original public meaning of what constitutes constitutes an establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof yeah so let me explain because it sounds like i just spent 10 minutes you know explaining <laughs> uh, what the founders meant by religious freedom or religious yeah. exercise and then, you know, the next thing you say, well, that's part one of the book. And part two is, well, the First Amendment isn't clear. <laughs> so let me try to explain this. Yeah. Uh, when you read uh, the so, again, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, so two basic questions. You know, what's an establishment of religion? What's the free exercise of religion? And just by reading the text of the First Amendment, it's it's not clear. You know, when the when the when the Constitution says the president must be 35 years of age, you know, we know what that means. It means you 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 can't run for president if you're 34, uh, and you can if you're 36, assuming you meet the other eligibility requirements. 
Well, what is an establishment of religion? Just by reading the text, it's not clear. So to interpret the text, you have to go beyond the text. You have to go somewhere to get a sense of what these words mean. That's why the court went to Jefferson, you know, you know back in 1947. My argument here is when they drafted the First Amendment, uh, if you go through the drafting records, uh, and I, you know, <laughs> as it sounds like, you know, I go through them meticulously. <laughs> and these are chapters really written for the lawyers. Mm. You go through the drafting records. Um, there's no common understanding uh, articulated on this is an establishment of religion or this is the free exercise of religion. So when you're trying to, uh, it, it's um, especially among conservatives, but really almost everyone says you have to start with the original meaning of the text to under, interpret the text. If you want to know what's the original meaning of an establishment or what's the original meaning of free exercise, looking at the text and the drafting records doesn't reveal that meaning. They just never clarified things. That's what I mean by the First Amendment is underdetermined. So it's not clear what the drafters and the ratifiers, so what the original understanding of these terms were. So we have to go somewhere to interpret them. And my argument is, well, let's go back to their, the founders' authoritative understanding. And that leads us back to the state, uh, the state records we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the uh, third of the main arguments is that, uh, an, that a, an originalist construction of the religious causes that is consistent with the First Amendment's text and the founders' most authoritative understanding would be based on the founder's conception of religious liberty as an inalienable natural right. Yeah, yeah, no, that good. I have nothing to add to that. That's a perfect summary. So you could say... <laughs> well, I just, um, I just literally just took it out of the book, so, <laughs> so technically your words. Um, so, you know, yeah. it's easier to, to understand the argument of the book if you start in the middle. So if, if you're a judge or a citizen and you want to know what your First Amendment rights are, you read the text of the Constitution. Well, the text of the Constitution isn't absolutely clear. You say, well, okay, well, what's the original understanding of the drafters and ratifiers of the text? And say, well, you know, it turns out that's not so clear, too. Well, then what's the founders' more general understanding? You know, if we want to be follow the founders in a more general sense, uh, their natural rights philosophy, what would that be? Well, that's what I articulate, actually, in part one of the book. And then in part three of the book, I try to explain, okay, if we followed... If we took seriously and followed the founders' natural rights political philosophy, the political philosophy of the Declaration of Independence, of an inalienable natural right, what would this look like in terms of jurisprudence? And then the, the third part of the book tries to tries to explain that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and but um, just because the founders shared a common view of the principle of religious liberty, that doesn't mean, obviously, that they agreed on every church-state matter. Yeah, and here, you know, here, this is um, a principle that anyone who's been involved in a business negotiation or anyone who, um, uh, I, you know, what comes to mind actually, as any student of Thomas Aquinas, I don't know how many students of Thomas Aquinas are listening, but Thomas Aquinas, the, the great um, medieval Catholic uh, theologian, when he's talking about the natural law, he says um, the, the first precepts of the natural law you know, do good, avoid evil, mm. are, are um, easy to agree upon. But when you um, get further and further away from those first precepts, then there can be disagreements. So I'm not sure if this is a good example, but you could say, look, um, a first precept would be, you know, uh, as applied to uh, driving around would be, um, we need uh, to construct traffic laws that are conducive to safety. You know, we should have uh, safety is the first element of government uh, to protect safety. Does that mean we should drive on the right or the left side of the road? Well, I mean, I, you, know, you could argue these things out. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, it doesn't really matter what side you drive on. I think you just have to um, all drive on the same side of the road. The further you get away from first principles, the more legitimate disagreement there is. Mm. And what I try to show is that's the same thing that happened about, with religious liberty and the founders. They agreed on these natural rights first principles. But when, you, when they tried to apply them to specific cases, then there's some disagreement. 
Uh, and I, I just try to articulate that disagreement. Um, uh, you know, uh, to what extent can government tax, uh, uses legitimate taxing powers to support churches? You know, well, there's some disagreement there. Um, uh, religious tests and uh, religious tests for office yeah. is another example, right? Uh, and the basic arguments, and I'm simplifying somewhat, are let me just use the tax support of religion argument. Sure. Um, you know, Jefferson and Madison said, look, uh, religion and the support of religion is beyond the jurisdiction of government, so government can't use its tax money to support religion. Again, oversimplifying a little bit. Uh, Patrick Henry and uh, George Washington said, well, you might be right in that, that we can't have direct taxes to support ministers, perhaps. Well, but let's think about this. Um, governments can certainly uh, tax citizens to educate the citizenry, you know, to teach them uh, the morality of Republican citizenship and uh well, it could be that religious ministers or religious institutions help teach morality. And so we're not really uh, supporting religion directly. We're supporting good civic ends of education, mm-hmm. responsible Republican citizenship. And we're using religious teachers as a means for those legitimate civic ends. And that's OK. Right. So here everyone would say, well, the government can't pronounce what is the true religion. But can you indirectly support religion to directly support the legitimate uh, civic end of good citizenship? Well, there's disagreement there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, obviously, as well, all natural rights have natural limits. I mean, you can't, uh, uh, you know, you can't say, well, I'm an Aztec and, you know, in my religion, we perform human sacrifice or <laughs> or if uh you know if say abraham and isaac hadn't existed up until like you know 2022 and then all of a sudden god came to them and you know said hey abraham you gotta kill isaac for me and then abraham's on his way to kill isaac and get stopped by the police or something like that and uh <laughs> when the police said what are you doing and he's like well god told me that you know i gotta kill him um you know, obviously they throw him in jail. But uh, so uh, uh, what did the founders think were the boundaries of the natural right of free exercise? Yeah, you're, you're directing. Uh, the com- I really appreciate you asking that question because okay. this directs, directs us to another sort of key. Um, I, I would say it's a novel argument of the book, but it's not novel at all. It's just common sense. Um, so we talk about uh, natural rights and, you know, the right to free speech or the right to religious liberty. And we tend to think about these, you know, we think if I have a right to, let me just use free speech as an example. If I have the right to free speech, it means I have the right to say anything I want without limits. And we know that that's not obvious. Obviously, that's not true. Um, You can't libel someone. You can't say false things about someone that destroy their reputation and character. That's not a part of the freedom of speech. And we all understand that. That's why we have libel laws, you know. Mm can't the new york times can't just print false things about people to destroy you know i mean they can but i mean they but but opens themselves up to litigation i mean you know i mean it's not that they can't do it they just yeah they can't they can't do it morally right and legally now the standard for libel is high you know it's actual malice you know so um but they can't (laughs) theoretically they can't intentionally (laughs) lie about people right and with reckless disregard for the truth and actual malice to defame someone's character. That's not part of freedom of the press or it's not part of freedom of speech. Um, we all know this. Another example I use in class, you know, so, you know, you, you own a house and you have your backyard. Um, it's not just, you know, for two on a Tuesday night or a, a, a Wednesday night, let's say, even if Notre Dame has just defeated Michigan State in a basketball game, to be out partying in your backyard, you know, at three in the morning, disturbing your neighbors. It's not an excuse that it's your property. You well, can't, you, you're obviously not from Florida. <laughs> but I sometimes have that problem. But yeah. uh, not, I mean, not me personally. I mean, I'm not the one out there. My, my neighbors have that issue. Well, uh, and, so, yeah. and let's... <laughs> 
just for a second, you know, forget about uh, municipal ordinances. Even if it's your property, you can't use your property in such a way that it becomes a nuisance to others. Right. You can't use your free speech in such a way that you libel others. You can't, well, okay, we all understand that. This is common sense. But right. what this reveals is natural rights all have natural limits. Just to say you have a natural right to something doesn't mean you can do anything. You have a natural right to liberty. You can't use your liberty to do anything. You know, I can't use my liberty of bod bodily movement to smack you across the face, mm -hmm. right? And uh, what this illustrates is our natural right to religious liberty doesn't mean we can do anything that's motivated by religion. So, as you know, the Aztec religion might be a legitimate religion. You still can't, if you're an Aztec, sacrifice children. You know, this is an actual historical practice. I'm not just making this up, right? Yeah, they uh, find they find uh, like mounds of skulls like every so often in Mexico and Central America when they're uh, digging stuff and they're excavating. And yeah, the Aztec were uh, uh, very bloody. The, the way the founders explain this is. Natural rights are part of the natural law, right? So there's a law of right and wrong, a law of reason, right? I would say a law of natural justice. And natural rights are part of that, right? It's just that we have certain freedoms, certain liberties, right? Including the right to religious liberty. But as part of the natural law, the natural law, which again is just the law of reason, limits how we can use our freedom, right? Um, you can't libel someone. That's not part of the freedom of speech. Right? The, the language the founders used to distinguish this, by the way, is they talked about the di distinction between liberty and license. Right. Uh, liberty is the, the moral or proper use of one's natural freedoms. License was the immoral or unjust or improper use of one's natural liberty. Um, it, it, this is not that difficult, but what it means is when we say we have a natural right to religious freedom, it doesn't mean you can do anything, right? There are reasonable limits uh, to all, or natural law boundaries to all natural rights. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, apologies, everybody listening. There, I forgot it's the first Thursday of the month, and they're testing the uh, the warning system here on the island. So if you hear a siren in the background going back and forth, that's what that is. So anyway. Um, so yeah, moving along, we you talked a little bit about Jefferson and Madison, but not too much. But uh, chapter three of the book really uh, looks into uh, both Jefferson and Madison as, as you say, you know, the two really preeminent philosophical statesmen of that era on religious liberty. So, uh, what was Jefferson's philosophy of the natural right to religious liberty, and uh, and Madison's? What was his natural philosophy of religious freedom yeah very good so there um I, I devote a chapter to try to explain um so the first two chapters of the book try to articulate what we've talked about the you know what is the natural right to religious freedom um the third chapter tries to explain well why did the founders believe we have a natural right of religious freedom what were their arguments and what i find is um well they there are different arguments jefferson uh, reasons from Enlightenment philosophy, he's much more secular. Um, Madison reasons from what I call natural theology. Um, what do I mean by natural theology? Um, it's natural in the sense that it's, it's, it's distinct from revealed theology. He, Madison reasons about what we can know about God and our obligations to God uh, using reason, uh, or just our natural reason, philosophical reason, so it's natural theology. And then um, uh, the third person I look at at this chapter is a, a Baptist preacher, very influential in the Northeast, uh, probably the most influential Baptist uh, preacher, influential preacher in Massachusetts at the time of the founding. His name's Isaac Bacchus. Mm -hmm. He has a more Christian or revealed theology for natural rights. Um, so I go through their different arguments on how they come to the conclusion of that we have a natural right to religious freedom. Uh, my overall argument is whether from secular enlightenment philosophy or from natural theology or from Christian revealed theology, the founders reached the same conclusion that we have a, a natural right to religious freedom. Yeah, uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, uh, Bacchus and the, 
that reveal the the Christian theological argument for the natural right to liberty. This is, I mean, the uh, the American tradition of the theologically grounded argument uh, for the separation of church and state and all that. that and that goes back basically almost immediately to the the colonists coming over here in the 17th century. I mean, that's something that uh, <laughs> uh, Roger Williams, you know, got uh, booted out of uh, Massachusetts for, you know. Sure, sort of Roger Williams and then Elijah Williams. So there's a, a rich Protestant tradition of uh, writings about religious freedom. It goes all the way back to the, um, you know, the, the, the Puritans in some sense. I mean, they, they wanted their own religious freedom at least. Um, I, I use Bacchus and there's, there's others. I mean, he's not the only person, obviously, John Leland from Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, um, you, you know, I only devote a few pages to this. Um, I thought it very important to include... Um, a Christian argument, uh, just to be true to our history. Um, there were definitely Christian Protestant arguments for religious freedom that, that reached the same results through different sorts of reasonings, through more theological reasonings for, from reading the Bible. I mean, Bacchus says, uh, Christ will have no pressed soldiers in his army. Uh, I'm not a Protestant theologian, so I, I just try to summarize what Bacchus says. Um, the, the essential point is, you know, the na- if you read the, the Gospels, uh, read the New Testament, um, God wants us to love him voluntarily. And we each have the obligation and right of independent judgment about uh, divine commands and divine obligations. That's responsibility uh, for us to, to worship uh, according to conscience. And that, that, that primal um, theological uh, and revealed c- command to, to love God freely, according to conscience, mm-hmm. translates into a political right to do so freely. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, uh, it's something I think we probably should talk about. Uh, what is, uh, you talk about expansive liberalism. And narrow republicanism. Uh, there's two different terms in the book. What what are expansive liberalism and narrow republicanism? Yeah, okay. Yeah, this gets back to um, our uh, earlier conversation um, or, uh, of how the founders disagreed. So the um, the the way I put it, you know, I think is actually pretty accurate. The founders agreed in principle, but disagreed in practical application. And I try to explain. I use these terms, which are terms I made up, um, sort of the two schools of thought on how they disagreed in practical application. And I use the term expansive liberals and narrow Republicans. I really dislike those terms. I just couldn't come up with anything better. Uh, <laughs> Don Drakeman, to go back to our beginning, didn't like these terms very much. I think uh-huh. he's right, but I still... Um, okay, so um, what do I mean by narrow Republicans? Well, the narrowness, it just means that the, the scope of the right to religious freedom, what, what government can do is relatively narrow, meaning government can do more. And Republican here, not in the sense of, you know, Ronald Reagan Republican, right. but in small uh, R Republican. Yeah, in, uh, in popular government. That, you know, if the people want to support moral character by using religious institutions, they can. So it's a narrower understanding of what government can't do on account of our natural rights and a more Republican, that is more democratic understanding what the people can do. Um, So you want to post the Ten Commandments up um, in public schools? That would be fine. Uh, You want to uh, celebrate, you know, days of fasting and Thanksgiving um, that, you know, that's probably fine as well under the narrow Republican understanding. I have to think about that one a little bit, but uh, you know, in general, it's more democratic mm-hmm. and less restrictive. That is, they're under, the narrow Republican understanding is less restrictive. The expansive liberals have a more expansive understanding of what government can't do, and a more liberal here, you know, in a more sort of classical liberal or even libertarian sort of way. A classical liberal is probably the better understanding. Uh, so more more expansive on the limits or the scope of limitations on the government and more classically liberal, emphasizing human freedom, human liberty uh, uh, approach. So um, there are more things government can't do. Mm-hmm. For example, use religious tests for office 
or use taxpayer support uh, of religion. These are the types of differences. So these terms, narrow Republicans and um, uh, expansive liberals, are, are just shorthand ways to um, explain some of the practical differences between the founders. Right. Uh, let me just, one other word on that. I mean, yeah, sure, go ahead. I'd be thinking, well, why does that matter? Um, well, two things. One, just to try to be accurate to the history. I mean, the founders didn't agree about everything. And you know, just try to be clear. Here's how they agreed. Here's how they disagreed. Just to, so the historical record is as straight as we can make it, as clear as we can make it. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is, um, sometimes what happens in jurisprudence is, is people will say, well, you know, James Madison said this, Thomas Jefferson said this. And, and that's really not sufficient. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson might have said that. that. That might be true. But you can't just assume because it's Thomas Jefferson, all the founders agreed. You have to understand how the founders agreed, but also understand how they disagreed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, the second part of the book uh, deals with the, the original meaning of the religion clauses. So I guess looking at the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, uh, you know, what is the historical context of of the drafting of the First Amendment? Um, you know, there were lots of proposed amendments that didn't make the cut for, I mean, the wording didn't make the cut or the actual meat of the amendment didn't make the cut uh, for the Constitution. And, and then there was a lot of wrangling in Congress over the amendments. So um, what do we know and what do we don't know uh, from this about the original meaning of, of these two clauses of the First Amendment? Well, let, yeah, let me start a little bit more on the context, because this, yeah. this maybe help explain um, how the founders might have drafted um, text without uh, unambiguously clear meaning. Uh, and it, it's, again, this, this is not novel. We've just forgotten our history. So when, when the Constitution is drafted, there's the people who support the Constitution, the ratification of the Constitution, they're called the Federalists. There's people who are against ratification, and they're called the Anti-Federalists. Um, the Anti-Federalists uh, weren't strong enough to prevent ratification of the Constitution. Uh, one of their strongest arguments of the Anti-Federalists was, hey, there's no Bill of Rights. Now, and truthfully, the Anti-Federalists didn't really want a Bill of Rights. They wanted a second constitutional convention. And because they wanted to rewrite the Constitution. Um, but arguing that the Constitution was going to be dangerous and no good because it lacked a Bill of Rights was a very pow powerful argument at the time. Uh, so the Federalists said, okay, here's the deal. You ratify the Constitution with us and we'll promise to, to write amendments uh, after ratification. And the Anti-Federalists basically agreed to that deal, even though ratification was very close. Hmm. So uh, what the Anti-Federalists wanted was a second constitutional convention to amend the Constitution. Okay, so we get ratification, and then we have the first congressional elections. And the Federalist Party dominates the first federal Congress. They have overwhelming majorities. Only a handful of Anti-Federalists anti were elected to the first Congress. And James Madison very smartly and adroitly says to his Federalist colleagues, hey, we promised the Anti-Federalist Amendments. They want a constitutional convention. Who knows what will happen if we have a constitutional convention? We in Congress should draft amendments, right? And that way we'll control what they say. Now, remember, the Federalists didn't think amendments were necessary. Right. Um, so the people who thought the Bill of Rights was not necessary drafted the Bill of Rights. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means they, they weren't especially careful when they did so because they didn't actually think these amendments were necessary. In fact, the only reason the Bill of Rights is at the end of the Constitution is because Roger Sherman, uh, uh, who was ardently against the Bill of Rights insofar as they're just not necessary, he says... Let's not spoil the Constitution by interspersing, you know, these amendments in the text. Let's just throw them in at the end. And ironically, throwing them in at the end gave them extra prominence. Um, so that's the story of how the First Amendment and some of the other amendments are drafted without a clear meaning, because the very people who drafted them didn't think they were really necessary. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, man, we're already 
God, we've already gone like 45 minutes. I can't believe it. Or oh, 50 minutes. Wow. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's. Apologize to you and the. Oh no 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 problem. Uh, so let's try to get to the. I guess we'll just move on to part three, uh, where you offer an originalist construction of the religious clauses based on the founders, as as we said, the founders inalienable rights understanding uh, that you you know basically explained in part one. But could you summarize your um, your originalist construction of, of the clauses? Uh, you know what you're what you're going for. Well, yeah. So what I try to do in um... Uh, the, the third part of the book is to say, okay, if, if we followed, strictly followed as best as we can, the inalienable natural, natural rights understanding of religious freedom, what would, what kind of jurisprudence would result? And um, just in broad strokes, broad strokes, it's far more democratic than the current court. There's actually a very few things that the, the Congress I'm sorry, that the Constitution would prohibit under the inalienable natural rights. It would prohibit a few things, and it would prohibit them categorically. But for the most part, um, the founders left decision-making up to the people themselves. So what would the Constitution prohibit if uh, interpreted in a natural rights perspective? Well, government couldn't exercise jurisdiction over religious exercises as such. So government could, could not tell you how to pray, could not tell you where to worship. Um, government lacks power over these things. So no fines for worship, no fines for lack of worship. This is how the religious freedom protects atheists. You know, you cannot be fined or thrown in prison for not going to church. Uh, why? Because government has no power to make anyone go to church. Um, I already talked about licensing of ministers. So there are some things government simply can't do. Uh, I argue that government can't appoint ministers themselves. So you can't have, this is a controversial argument, but you can't have congressional or military chaplains as a consequence because it's not the business of government to appoint ministers. Um, uh, but could government support religion? Could government pass general laws within its competence that burden religious groups? And my answer to all this is, as long as it's within the power that government does have, then it, it can do these things. So government can use religion. Government can hinder religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a far more democratic uh, approach to government, uh, approach to religious liberty and religion than, um, uh, than we're used to. Um, and, and maybe it's not a good approach. Uh, I, I try to talk about that clearly. But this is what the natural rights approach is. So do you think, uh, in your opinion, uh, do you think we should adopt the natural rights construction? Well, I, you know, I, the last chapter um, <laughs> is, offers my evaluation. So, you know, through the first eight chapters, I'm just trying to present right. uh, the founders. And I, I try to be as clear as this is possible. Um, I'm trying to present the founders. I'm not trying to advocate for them. In the last chapter, I try to say, yeah, here are the strengths and weaknesses of the approach. Um, some of the strengths are, um, well, uh, the founder's approach is at least grounded in principles of justice, whereas the modern approach, uh, various approaches um, adopted by the court are just ad hoc, not well thought through, um, not well grounded. Um you know, neutrality. Well, what does neutrality mean? Where does neutrality come from? The, the, the First Amendment says nothing about neutrality. And what does neutrality towards religion mean anyways? These are vague concepts that are not helpful, that basically allow judges and candidly the ruling class to do whatever they want. And those are, those are not good principles of jurisprudence. Um, the founders' um, principles are, are much deeper, much richer, uh, much sounder, I think. Um, the downside, if there is a downside, is that they're much more democratic. So really turns over, I mean, the founders really set up self-government. What does that mean today? Well, if the people in their legislative majorities pass laws that do not target religion, but burden religious individuals, these could be non-discrimination laws, you know, uh, protecting, um, uh, same-sex rights or even tra- transgender rights. You know, these many religious conservatives find these laws very burdensome. Um, 
Well, the natural rights approach, if these laws are duly passed, doesn't offer exemptions from laws. Um, you know, you, you, you'd have, if you don't like the laws, you have to overturn them or keep them from being passed. You don't get, there's no religious exemptions in the natural rights approach. And, and you know, that's pretty controversial among uh, religious conservatives. Mm -hmm. So under this approach, I know, uh, you know, going back to the whole separation church and state thing, uh, that the federal government can't establish a national church, but the states were basically free uh, to have established churches. And uh, some of them, or I think Connecticut was the last one to get rid of its established, or Massachusetts or Connecticut, one of the two, was the last to get rid of its established church in, the, I think, like the 1820s or the 1830s. So, you know, 40, 50 years after, um, after the drafting of the Constitution, after the Bill of Rights. Uh, so if could a state go back and say, like, hey, we want to, uh, we're going to establish, you know, could like Utah establish the Mormon church? Uh, and, you know, or could like a municipality or a county uh, government say that uh, on this, uh, in, you know, uh, in Squaresville, the, uh, the Lutheran church is the established church of Squaresville and, uh, you know, and, and could uh, Triangleville say like, no, Catholic church is the established church of Triangleville, et cetera, et cetera. Could, is, is that constitutionally possible? It would it, um, it would depend on uh, well at, at the time of the founding uh, federalism meaning that church state matters were to be left with the left primarily with the states uh, was certainly mm -hmm. the establishment clause was all about so uh, in one sense the answer is just yes that there was a much more freedom for states to do what they thought proper when it came to church state relations. Um, I, I think, though, if you reason it out, there are some forms of establishment that would be incompatible with the natural rights understanding. Um, so if you go back to the original meaning of the First Amendment, it, that is that the Bill of Rights in total does not apply to the states, neither the Free Exercise Clause or the Establishment Clause, then it, then the states can do a lot uh, in, terms of, in terms of establishment. But if we say that the, the First Amendment free exercise clause now protects everyone, even at the state level, um, then certain forms, in fact, probably most forms of establishment would be prohibited. Because in here, this is something the court has never quite understood and never got right. The reason we prohibit religious establishments is to protect religious freedom. Right. The, the principle is religious free exercise non-establishment is a means to that principle non-establishment doesn't mean the separation of church and state non-establishment properly understood means protect religious freedom gotcha all right well uh we're running towards the end here it's already been an hour so i guess i'll just uh end it with the uh question i normally ask everybody that comes on the podcast at the end and that's uh, uh basically you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book or, or what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? You know, if, if a reader understands the idea of natural rights better, and that's not limited just to religious freedom, you know, that, um, yeah, what does it mean to have a natural right? And that's important because if the founders are correct, these natural rights are part of justice and it's our responsibility to protect our natural rights you know, to, to say that we have natural rights is to say there are some things government can't do to us and it would be wrong and illegitimate if government tried to take away our natural rights or our children's natural rights and it's up to us to protect them we can't protect our natural rights if we don't know what they are so a deeper understa understanding and appreciation appreciation and commitment to our natural rights is what I hope our our readers would take from the book. All right, great. Well, uh, before we go, is there anything else you want to plug? Uh, any social media yeah. or, uh, you know, anything else that you're working on? You know, something like that you want to let people know about? No, no, just if you come through South Bend, Indiana, you know, <laughs> visit us. I, I direct at Notre Dame, the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government, and we're always doing all sorts of interesting things. And, uh, you know, if any, any listener, um, you know, picks up the book, I, 
I, I'm actually very curious to know what people like and what they don't don't like. So I'd encourage you can find my um, contact information on the Notre Dame Political Science web webpage and send me an email if you listen uh, to this podcast or or read the book. And I, I'd love to know what people think. All right, great. Yeah, and uh, the winter months are definitely uh, the best time to give South Bend a visit. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, you know, you gotta make sure you get the get a little bit of lake effect snow in your life and uh you know cold and darkness and all that stuff more than a little yeah more than a little that's for sure (laughs) all right uh again the book is religious liberty and the american founding natural rights and the original meanings of the first amendment religion clauses um yeah as i said earlier in the podcast if you're interested in this subject how we got where we are what the founders uh in general sense uh really thought of natural rights and um and religious liberty religious freedom uh i can't think of a better book to pick up uh than this one it's a fantastic fantastic uh survey of uh of religious liberty church state relations natural rights all that stuff so highly highly recommend it to to everybody out there make sure you pick up a copy and uh, give it a read so uh, yeah, again, the book is Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses, and the author, Dr. Vincent Philip Munoz. And uh, Dr. Munoz, thank you again very, very much for, for coming on the podcast and uh, talking uh, talking about your book with me. It was uh, uh, really enjoyed really enjoyed reading it and uh, really enjoyed discussing it with you. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have any uh, questions or comments or if you have uh, you know, books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbensononheartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our uh, Twitter account for the podcast. You can reach out to us there, too. If you have any uh, questions, comments, whatever, so you know, feel free to give us a follow, send us a DM, all that sort of stuff. Our Twitter account handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books, so make sure you check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.
Oh, 